This is Unsung History, the podcast where we discuss people and events in American history that haven't always received a lot of attention. I'm your host, Kelly Therese Pollack. I'll start each episode with a brief introduction to the topic and then talk to someone who knows a lot more than I do. Be sure to subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. And please, Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers to listen to. Sometime around 1753, a little girl was born, somewhere in West Africa, possibly in Senegal or Gambia. She had a name and a family and a hometown, but we don't know them. The first time the little girl appears in surviving records, as far as we know, is when she arrived in Boston on a slave ship on July 11, 1761, when she was around seven or eight years old. The ship was named the Phyllis, which became the name of the little girl as well. Phyllis, who was a sickly little girl, would not have been most buyers' first choice in the slave market. But Susanna Wheatley, the wife of wealthy Boston merchant John Wheatley, saw something in the girl and purchased her. Someone in the Wheatley home, likely Susanna or her daughter Mary, taught Phyllis to read and write, and even tutored her in Greek and Latin. When she was 12 years old, Phyllis Wheatley wrote a letter to Samson Ockham, the Mohegan missionary who had stayed in the Wheatley home, and she began writing poetry. When she was 14, Phyllis Wheatley wrote a poem about two other visitors to the Wheatley home, Nantucket merchants Hussey and Coffin who had recently survived a terrible storm at sea. In the poem, Phyllis asked, quote, Did fear and danger so perplex your mind as made you fearful of the whistling wind? Unquote. This was the first of Wheatley's poems to be published in the Newport Mercury on December 21, 1767, but she would later publish poems written even earlier. On September 30th, 1770, Anglican evangelist George Whitefield, one of the most popular preachers of the day, and yet another guest of the Wheatleys, died on a trip to North America, collapsing in Newburyport, Massachusetts. Wheatley, who had been writing elegies for years by that point, wrote a 62-line piece she called an elegiac poem on the death of that celebrated divine and eminent servant of Jesus Christ, the reverend and learned Mr. George Whitefield. The Wheatley family published the poem as a broadside, first printed on October 11th in Boston, and sold for seven coppers, with many reprints, including in London. There were many elegies written for Whitefield but Phyllis Wheatley's was the most popular, 
and she suddenly gained international fame. Capitalizing on that fame, Phyllis decided to publish a book of 28 of her poems. Publisher Ezekiel Russell advertised for Wheatley's book in his newspaper, The Censor, on February 29, 1772, trying to generate enough interest for a pre-sale of 300 books, which would give him the capital to print the volume. Unfortunately, whether because of lack of interest or economic problems in Boston, Russell never published Phyllis's book, and he folded the censor entirely after May 2nd of that year. In May of 1773, Phyllis Wheatley once again set sail, this time to London, with John and Susanna's son, Nathaniel Wheatley, on the London packet. After a five-week voyage, they arrived in London, where Phyllis Wheatley carried with her an attestation signed by 18 of the most important men in Boston, including town selectmen, merchants, ministers, and even the governor and lieutenant governor of Massachusetts, who certified that they believed the poems to have been written by Phyllis. In London, Wheatley met with Lord Dartmouth, Lord Lincoln, Dr. Daniel Salander of the British Museum, Benjamin Franklin, and abolitionist Granville Sharp. After six weeks in London, Phyllis departed, returning on the London packet, this time without Nathaniel, who stayed in London and by November of that year was engaged to the daughter of a wealthy British merchant. On September 1st, 1773, Wheatley's book, Poems on Various Subjects, Religious and Moral, was published in London, subsidized by Selina Hastings, Countess of Huntington. It was only the third book of poetry published by a North American woman, and the first book in English by a person of African descent. At some point soon after that, the Wheatley family freed Phyllis. The exact date of her emancipation is unknown. A few months later, in March of 1774, Susanna Wheatley died after a long illness. Although Susanna had enslaved Phyllis and had freed her only after she achieved fame, Phyllis still felt a complicated kind of affection for Susanna. Writing to her friend upon Susanna's death, quote, I was treated by her more like her child than her servant. No opportunity was left unimproved of giving me the best of advice, but in terms how tender, how engaging. This I hope ever to keep in remembrance, unquote. Underscoring the complexity in this relationship and her larger feelings about slavery, Phyllis Wheatley wrote in a letter to Samson Ockham in 1774, which he printed likely without her consent, quote, In every human breast, God has implanted a principle, which we call love of freedom. 
it is impatient of oppression and pants for deliverance. And by the leave of our modern Egyptians, I will assert that the same principle lives in us. How well the cry for liberty and the reverse disposition for the exercise of oppressive power over others agree. I humbly think it does not require the penetration of a philosopher to determine. Unquote. Susanna's death meant that Phyllis was left without her biggest champion, and not everyone would treat her so well going forward. Four years later, John Wheatley died, as did Mary, who by then was married to Reverend John Lathrop, leaving Phyllis without any of her protectors. On April 1st, 1778, just weeks after John Wheatley's death, Phyllis Wheatley announced that she was marrying John Peters, a free black grocer in Boston, and one who appears to have been well-read. They were married by John Lathrop on November 26, 1778. Sadly, Mary had died just a couple of months earlier. Phyllis took John's last name, and they lived together in Boston and in Middleton, Massachusetts. The couple had at least one child together, although some sources say they had three children. It appears that none of the children survived childhood. Wheatley Peters attempted to publish another book, a 200-page work that she called A Volume of Poems and Letters on Various Subjects. But the economy of Boston, again, didn't support publication, and she didn't manage to print the book. Phyllis Wheatley Peters died on December 5th, 1784, in Boston, at the age of only 31. Notices of her death appeared in several papers in Boston and elsewhere. Her husband attempted to publish her second book several times after her death, but he was never able to make it happen. Of the over 100 poems Wheatley is estimated to have written, 55, known to have been written by her, survive. Joining me to discuss Phyllis Wheatley is Dr. David Waldstreicher, Distinguished Professor of History at the City University of New York Graduate Center, and author of The Odyssey of Phyllis Wheatley, A Poet's Journeys Through American Slavery and Independence. Before that conversation, please enjoy Larice Roberts reading a poem by Phyllis Wheatley. To S.M., a young African painter on seeing his works, to show the laboring bosom's deep intent and thought and living characters to paint, when first thy pencil did those beauties give and breathing figures learnt from thee to live. How did those prospects give my soul delight, a new creation rushing on my sight? Still, wondrous youth, each noble path pursue, on deathless glories fix thine ardent view. Still may the painters and the poets fire to aid thy pencil and thy verse conspire. 
and may the charms of each seraphic theme conduct thy footsteps to a mortal theme. High to the blissful wonders of the skies, elate thy soul and raise thy wishful eyes. Thrice happy when exalted to survey that splendid city crowned with endless day, whose twice six gates on radiant hinges ring, celestial Salem blooms in endless spring. Calm and serene thy moments glide along, and may the muse inspire each future song. Still with the sweets of contemplation blessed, may peace with balmy wings your soul invest. But when these shades of time are chased away, and darkness ends an everlasting day, on what seraphic pinion shall we move and view the landscapes in the realms above? There shall thy tongue and heavenly murmurs flow, and there my muse with heavenly transport glow. No more to tell of Damon's tender sighs, or rising radiance of Aurora's eyes, for nobler themes demand a nobler strain and pure language on the ethereal plain. Cease, gentle muse, the solemn gloom of night now seals the fair creation from my sight. David, thanks so much for joining me today. It's great to be here. I loved reading your book and learning about Phyllis Wheatley. wanted to start by asking uh, how you came to write this book. I had written a little bit about Wheatley in my first two books. The first was a study of celebrations and political culture, Fourth of July and nationalism. And I talked a bit about Wheatley as having engaged in some of that sort of writing as uh, one of the early free African-Americans who helped establish a tradition of engaging with American nationalism for anti-slavery purposes. So that was just a paragraph. Then when I wrote a book about Benjamin Franklin and slavery, I found that there was this really interesting interchange between Franklin and Wheatley when Wheatley was in London that had, I thought, really hadn't been unpacked or treated critically. People tended to use it to say, oh, look, Franklin was sympathetic to black people, maybe even an abolitionist at that point. And uh, I thought, oh, this is much more complicated than that. There's more going on here. He goes to visit her, but then he says, uh, well, I went to visit her like you asked me to. His, you know, like, like his cousin in Boston asked, asked him to. But uh, her master was rude to me, and uh, I haven't heard anything else about it since. So what's going on there? So I tried to put that in the context of all the other things Franklin was doing and what Wheatley was doing. So that was a, that was another level. That was a couple of paragraphs. And uh, at a certain point, I realized that maybe as a historian of the revolution and slavery, who has a PhD in American studies and is interested in literary criticism, maybe I had something to add to our understanding of, of Wheatley and what she was up against and what she was doing. So I uh, wrote a few 
few articles, a few essays, and and gradually figured out how to make it into the kind of book I wanted to write. So there's a, a lot in this book. It, there's a ton of sources that you're referencing and looking at. I wonder if you could talk through a little bit what what sources we have, what sources we don't have about her life, what what we sort of can and can't know about her. Yes. Well, the reason why there haven't been many biographies, really only one before mine that's scholarly, though plenty of uh, juvenile biographies and more imagined novels for young adults mostly, really, based on what research was easily uh, obtained, is that there isn't much, really, in conventional terms for a biography. There are her poems, uh, more, more of them than we had decades ago, but about 57 or 58, depending on on how many you one accepts as definitely having been written by her. I argue that there are some more anonymous ones that that um, that she may have written that I include in the appendix. And there are about a dozen letters. But other than that, it's what I call footprints she left. Things people said about her, how they responded to her, who they were. And that's been very limiting and and unsatisfying in biographical terms for the most part. And what I uh, realized at a certain point was that this had also affected how uh, even the literary criticism, um, much of which is really good and imaginative and careful and scholarly, uh, in that because there were so many gaps in understanding her life, uh, both in the beginnings and even in the periods where we know that she was writing and publishing a lot, um, as well as the beginning and the end, where we actually know a lot less, less six years of her life and the first eight years of her life before she comes to Boston. We know almost, we know very, very little that people hadn't, who had studied her, hadn't paid attention to her poems as being written at particular moments for particular audiences. It was more like, let's read her poems and try to figure out what she thought about slavery or, or how religious she was or, um, what her identity was. She didn't have a long career, so it made sense to kind of treat things she wrote early like things she wrote later, unless one was looking for the evolution of her evolution as an artist, her skill, where where there was a clear evolution, or her increasing willingness perhaps to take chances and write and, and more ambitious genres or more ambitious poems. Uh, but mostly it was kind of read her book where she collects a lot of a lot of but not everything that she had done up to 1773 and in a few of the poems that we have that she wrote later and say what Phyllis what kind of an artist Phyllis Wheatley was. I uh, as a historian I and as a political historian especially I thought well you know if she's if she's really as deeply engaged with what's going on in Boston and the coming of the revolution that as as some have realized then 1765 is not the same as 1768, which is not the same as 1773, which is not the same as 1776. And writing to George Washington is not the same as writing uh, to friends of her mistress or a minister in Boston. Uh, But the book really came together when I started to read the Boston newspapers. And when I say read them, I mean, look at every page of, of all four or five Boston newspapers from the time she gets there all the way through the rest of her life. This took a long time. Uh, but it's a kind of research I really enjoy. And then so much started to fall into place about uh, her cohort of Africans who arrived in New England after the seven years, during and after the seven years war, 
of what they were doing on the streets of Boston, about what skills they had, about how, about the fact that she's not the only one who's literate, and what the various people who she interacts with, writes poems about, writes poems for, who comment on her, what they're doing and what they're thinking. And this, I feel, enabled me to contextualize and fill in a lot of the gaps with with reasonably plausible interpretations and speculations about what she was doing. I guess the most important thing is that I structured the book then as a story about how she gets from one poem to the next, one important poem to the next, or one one sort of set of issues that she works through in her poetry. So the chapters are short, and they're often built around one or two poems, which I talk about as as actions and as the best evidence for what was going on with her at, at, at different times. So let's talk to you then about the literary environment in which she's writing, because I think it's it's hard for us to put ourselves back into what literary references everyone would have known then, what she was reacting to. So could you talk a little bit about that? And she's clearly responding to the literary world in which she lives. Right, well, the, the most important thing to realize is that poems are popular culture at this time. That probably the best comparison would be would really be music songs today in the sense of uh, just how many people share in it, have their favorites, have their genres, but nonetheless, it is a place where you see people working out issues that are sometimes personal and spiritual, sometimes political, sometimes a mix of the two. And while that is true, it's also true that poetry is more open to women. Usually they don't. Usually they publish anonymously, but it is a a set of forms that they are expect that that many women are familiar with and expected to appreciate. And also that Boston is pretty much the most literate town in the English, as literate as any place in the English speaking world. So it's uh, while uh, the other really important thing to realize is that. Phyllis Wheatley is part of an evangelical project. Her uh, her owner, Susanna Wheatley, was very much involved with Methodist and evangelical Protestant outreach, outreach to Native Americans and to other enslaved people. The 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 uh, patron in England, who uh, they eventually reach out to to help publish the book, also sponsored some of the first published slave narratives. So uh, there is this um, sort of there's a religious subculture that is very involved, that is very interested in the uses of literacy and also uses uh, poems and and um, hymns in their everyday practice. And then there is the neoclassical revival, the publication of translations of Greek and Roman classics in English meter by poets like Alexander Pope, which become bestsellers. So she's responding to all of that. And I think uh, we mo most it's sometimes the religious part of it is more obvious because though that some of the some of the first poems she writes uh, and some of the most famous ones are so obviously pious uh, and put her in the position really of a, a kind of lay minister telling people what to do to be saved, how to respond to the death of their children or their or their friends or their uh, loved ones or their relatives. But there's also uh, this way in which 
this Greek and Roman world, especially Homer and translations of Homer, but also others like Horace and Virgil, are uh, those poems, uh, uh, the epics, but also the epistles and the satires and all the different kinds of neoclassical poetry, depict a world uh, that has women, that has enslaved people, that has shipwrecks and dangerous voyages and enslavement. So in engaging with this literature, she is able to, I think, talk about and play with realities in this ancient Mediterranean world that are not that much different than what she experienced in Africa and in the Atlantic, and which enabled her to talk about things that nobody heard, that white people didn't want to hear or talk about directly. So that's why the book's called The Odyssey of Philip Let's talk a little bit about this weird position that she has within the Wheatley family, the white Wheatley family. And, you know, she, she comes into the family is bought as a seven or eight year old, which is unusual in itself. And then she has this weird position where she's kind of companion, still enslaved kind of kid. They want to promote her. What, what's going on here? What, what were you able to unpack about this weird relationship? Right. That's, that's a very, that's a, it's a very important question. The fact that she is not only taught how to read but then put forward as a, a a genius, a prodigy, and the and the Wheatleys play a central role in getting her poems published, has usually been interpreted to mean that she's kind of an experiment, and she's not really, even if she's enslaved, she's not a typical slave, so she doesn't tell us anything about the experience of slaves, or about slavery, or even about maybe the struggle against slavery that is broadening and becoming a real thing in this time and place i i think that's i think that misunderstands the way the what all the different things that that enslaved people did in new england in the 18th century the fact that they were uh, an important part of the labor force and the fact that they were all embedded in families just like orphans and indentured servants and apprentices everyone had to be in a fa- in a family that doesn't mean it wasn't slavery though it does mean they were often treated as inferior members of a family and talked about that way the difference was that they could be and often were sold when uh, as well as mistreated in the way that slaves always have been throughout history in in many ways but the key thing here is that they lived under threat of sale. That could either be for misbehavior or for financial opportunity, or most commonly when their owner died and the estate was broken up or they or was transferred to to someone who held a debt or or a family member. That made it very hard for them to have families of their own. Uh, so, and if that isn't slavery, I don't know what is, um, and that it doesn't, we don't have to compare it to, uh, laboring in the sugar cane on a plantation in the West Indies in order for it to be real slavery or for it to be racial slavery, which it so clearly was. And, uh, at a time when more and more people were starting to use, uh, racial differences as an excuse to justify something that they knew very well didn't accord with their other values. So uh, how does all this uh, play out in the Wheatley family? Well, we might think of the Wheatleys as kind of reformers. 
They want to make slavery better. They want to make it not as bad as it is in other places. And they want people to convert their slaves and raise them up as good Christians, which will then be a project that may even convert the heathen in Africa and uh, everybody will live happily ever after. So that's their larger project. The thing that's going on in the household also is that they are that is that they have uh, their only surviving children at this point are are twins, Nathaniel and Mary, who, when Phyllis arrives at age seven or eight, are about age 18. And they had a younger child who died and they had other um, young children who died young. And uh, Phyllis becomes basically the 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 younger child that didn't that, that didn't survive at a time when the others are growing up and it becomes a kind of family project. But she also, I think Susanna Wheatley becomes emotionally de- dependent on her. And that I think that's clear from the testimony we have about how Susanna felt. About, we don't have much from Susanna. We have as told to stuff, how Susanna felt about her and what Phyllis herself says about their relationship. And Phyllis, frankly, uh, uses that to uh, improve her position and do some things that she wants to do. And I think I think that it, it's not uh, a leap to say that she had a very ambivalent relationship, could only have had a very ambivalent relationship to Susanna and to the rest of the family, in which it was clear that they uh, cared about her, but also increasingly clear that what her adult life was going to be like as the Wheatleys are getting old and ill and Nathaniel and Mary are growing up and, and, get, and getting married and trying to have lives of their own and maybe a little bit jealous too. I think there's some evidence that they were uh, some tension in the family over over her role and how much attention she was getting, that these are the things that she was dealing with. And that uh, as a result, she doesn't know how things are going to turn out. And she's trying to leverage her increasing fame and skill to try to to become free and have what what the other uh, young adults want and have at that time. I want to pick up on the the way you were just describing her as an actor in this situation. I think it's it's easy to sort of think of her as as passive, but she's very clearly an actor here. She is working not just toward her own freedom, but is trying to argue for slavery's end. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because she seems so politically savvy in a way that must have been extraordinarily difficult to navigate for her. Yeah, she gets herself into a position where at the very moment when the Anglo-American conversation about slavery is intensifying and uh, we're we're seeing a kind of explosion of anti-slavery literature and uh, conversation inflected by the imperial controversy, people are starting to say, on the one hand, well, if we're if we're going to fight for our if we're going to talk about liberty and how the British are enslaving us, maybe we need to think differently about slavery. I think even more important is the fact that people were skeptical about the about those claims, started to throw the fact, the overwhelming fact of North American slavery in the faces of the patriots. And Wheatley very cannily keeps her options open and lines of communication open, both to people who are sympathetic and critical of the Americans as long as she can and um, knows very well who her audiences are and uses the opportunity she has to suggest that 
maybe there's that that yes the patriots have a point in insisting on their liberties but maybe there is something inherently wrong with enslaving others and also i think just while doing so in like accepting that she's being perceived as an african and as a an example of african potential and as a kind of one woman anti-slavery argument argument against the inferiority or the inability of africans to assimilate or to become equal members of of, of anglo-american society on the one hand because of her skill she's showing that oh well you know maybe like slaves who deserve it or slaves who become adults or slaves who are productive then deserve to be freed at some point so that there's that kind of reformist argument i think that's that's what she's assuming in the beginning because she's reading these greek and roman classics it's very clear that very skilled slaves get emancipated one way or the other that's roman slavery um it, it, it happens all the time as it were so that there's that aspect of it but then there's also this uh, other dimension to it where uh, she uses the hypocrisy arguments and um, insists that, yes, I'm African, but look at what I'm doing. Look at how I, I'm supporting the patriot movement. I am British. I understand British liberty, British culture, and I am all, eventually I am all, also American. So I, I think this is I particularly want to underline this, that, that it becomes very clear that she that against other people pushing her in different directions, she insists that she's African and British and American. And there is no conflict or contradiction between those identities and in fact her politics depends on her insistence of, of being all three you mentioned earlier that there's this cohort of both free and enslaved black people in boston in new england at the time could you talk a little bit about her relationship with that cohort that seems really important to her ability to to sort of realize there's this larger audience to talk to we don't we don't have a lot of evidence about her relationships with other Africans in Boston. What we do have is a lot of evidence that it was a community that they, that 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 uh, enslaved people had friends and relationships beyond the families that they lived in, and that this was uh, uh, something that that happened and was very common and was all sometimes a matter of, of great concern to the authorities. We have more evidence uh, of her friendship with Obor Tanner, who lived in Rhode Island and who um, it's been speculated may have been a shipmate, may have come over on the same ship. Uh, they seem to know each other. There's a closeness that, um, so either, either the Wheatleys went to Lo Rhode Island or Obor Tanner's owners brought her to boston on numerous occasions because they're corresponding in a way that suggests a, a closeness uh, a proximity and that tanner also introduces her and then later on she in 1775 she actually is is in in providence for a while so she uh interacts with these folks then but it's clear she gets to know some of tanner's friends and some of the the leading free and enslaved uh members of uh, the first church in newport uh, and uh that there's enough evidence uh and um I want to single out Tara Bynum, who's written about this so fascinatingly and eloquently. There's plenty of evidence that she is, even if she is not writing directly for that community, she is informed by them and by their strivings, and that uh, that that those friendships are are important. But I think it's just as important that we can see other Africans and descendants of Africans writing poems saying and writing and publishing against slavery 
and that that's got going on in 1773, 74, 75, and that that is informing her strategies. She knows that she is becoming the most famous among them and kind of a spokesman, a spokesperson, but she's also being very, very careful not to lose those opportunities by offending her, her various constituencies. It's a very delicate, very careful dance that she, that she is doing and one that becomes more and more difficult as protest turns to war. Another thing that happens then on the eve of revolution, not the immediate eve, but she goes to London. You mentioned earlier she met with Benjamin Franklin. She's still enslaved at this point. She goes to London to to pull together this book that she wants to publish. Could you talk about this trip a little bit? And it, it's clearly so monumental, both in the ability to publish the book, but then in, in her life after that. One key thing about the visit is that it's partly a response to the difficulty of getting her poems published in Boston. The, mo- the more anti-slavery printers who, who had proposed to publish her book uh, aren't doing that well economically, or they don't get enough subscribers. It, it's getting, the economy is not so great. It's getting harder to, to, to publish a book in Boston. And frankly, some of the patri- I think some of the Patriot printers are, are a little worried about the implications and whether it might be thrown in their faces and turn out to be embarrassing. And they get opportunities to, as I said, to publish in London, and maybe that will be an even bigger publishing event. And she helps make that happen by writing a letter to Countess Huntingdon when she writes her elegy on the death of George Whitfield, by writing a poem to, uh, to Lord Dartmouth and getting it into the hands of someone of someone who actually knows Dartmouth and brags about knowing Dartmouth. And her her owners, the Wheatleys, they own a ship that 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 goes several times a year. And uh, Nathaniel is planning on going. So uh, they set it all up that she's going to go over and uh, oversee the publication of the book, as it were. But they don't say that in Boston. They say, oh, she's she's uh, well, she is going she is being patronized by Countess Huntington. That gets mentioned. But they kind of hush that up and they say she's going for her health. But it actually makes it into the newspapers. And it's just a great example of the very careful, like, no, I'm not, I'm not overdoing this. I'm not putting myself forward, uh, even though, like, it, like, and it is true that she had, she had an, a chronic, probably asthmatic condition. But people didn't go to London for their, they took the sea air for their help, but they didn't go to London. They didn't go on a like a, a, a six week voyage on the ocean in the North Atlantic, you know, Atlantic for their for their health, really, and certainly not to to stay in London, notoriously smoky, smoggy, damp London for their health. People left London for their health. So she gets there and she's shown around, feted. She's, um, you know, immediately goes to see a major patron uh, of the arts in uh, in an episode that doesn't get much attention. It hasn't hasn't been noticed by scholars because the guy guy is elderly and dies. But he's this guy, this uh, Lord who had sponsored poets for decades. And uh, she gets shown around town by the anti-slavery activist Granville Sharp, who takes her to the Tower of London. And she writes letters back saying about how about all these amazing people she met and Lord Dartmouth gives her books and and Benjamin Franklin and everything. And she signs copies of the book so that people will, you know, so that they're not they don't get pirated. She signs the frontispiece of of, uh, at least 100 copies. Half of the extant ones are, are actually signed by her first edition. And just as importantly, though, by the time she's getting ready, she's comes back. It's very clear that she has been uh, the people are asking, you mean she's still a slave? 
really? And one of the reviewers who said, who doesn't even say her poems are that great, but, but uh, can't resist the opportunity to say, doesn't this show how hypocritical the Americans are that they would keep this obviously highly skilled person in chains? So the Wheatleys are kind of have to free her. It's embarrassing. This thing that made them look really good is all of a sudden making them look like a, a, a scandal. It was one of the last things I decided to do in the book because I can't say for certain how it happened that she became free. And so I, I wanted to be very careful about it. But in a chapter called the, the Emancipation, I lay out four scenarios based on the, the evidence we have of how this happened, that she became free soon after or while she was in, in England, based on the evidence we have. And the evidence is murky, not just because it doesn't exist. The evidence is murky because she said different things about it to different people. So so why did she say different things about it to different people? Well, it's because she was an actor in her own emancipation, but she couldn't claim to be that. So she's saying, oh, they decided to free me. Or my friends in England, at the behest of my friends in England, I've been freed, she says to, she says to, to one person uh, in London. And then to people, and then, and then to others, she says, my, my master and mistress have decided to free me and then but then there's other there's other evidence that where like it may have been whispered that she was going to be freed anyway so it, so in one way or another that over this process of her going to london it was an emancipating moment but very revealingly that is not that's not the public transcript that's not the thing that can be said and celebrated the way we would tell the story of this triumph that like the, the publication of i mean it may be because no one could imagine a, a, a published author owns the property of their book can someone who is owned own their book? It creates a legal conundrum. I mean, it may have been a, it may have been the, the realization. It may have been in the works already, but then going and the embarrassment sped it up. So I lay out these different these different uh, scenarios. But the important thing is that we can see that not only is she an actor in making it happen, she's an actor in control or in clouding the meaning of it to keep her options open so that she doesn't offend people who don't who might have issues with her exercising that much power over her fate. So you mentioned we don't know a lot about the end of her life. What what do we know about the end of her life? And what what are the reasons we don't know a little bit more? The, the, reason, we do, the reason we don't know much is partly a result of her emancipation. When she's emancipated, she still is writing ambitiously, but she, outside of the Wheatley's orbit, and because of, of the fact that quarter to a third of the population leave Boston. There's an out-migration of, law, of, of a lot of people who are supporters. And a lot of, of the Wheatley's friends are getting old and, and dying off. And so she really uh, has this loss of patronage, and she really has to kind of find her own way trying to sell her books. And she's on, she's, she leaves Boston with, with uh, Mary Wheatley and her husband, goes to Providence, comes back. And it's very hard to tell exactly what she's doing, but it is clear she's still writing writing quite ambitiously, writing poems about Revolutionary War generals, for example, and trying and working on a second book manuscript. But we one of the reasons we don't know much is that all the Wheatleys die off. Nathaniel dies um, even like uh, around, around the, in the early 1780s also. Mary dies in 1778. And so there's no Wheatley estate. We know even less about the White Wheatleys than we do about Phyllis, actually, because there's pra- practically no, like, every, all, most of the letters that have survived are connected to Phyllis. There there should be more in just other people's, other Bostonians' 
papers that have survived. It's there's just so little that we that we actually have about them. So there's no so there's very little to go on in terms of 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 where she lived and what she and what she was doing. Another factor is that she uh, when it becomes clear that John Wheatley dies and does not leave her any property and the house is going to be sold and she may have helped take care about take care of him in his in his um declining years uh, as the rest of the family is 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 out of the picture she she very quickly gets married to this very impressive man named John Peters who uh was a uh did a bunch of different occupations and but was uh well known for representing himself and others in court and i think uh, there's enough testimony to make it clear that he was quite impressive and literate and uh, that she really made a made a, a, com- a completely logical choice uh, that you would expect she, she married she married one of the more impressive black men in boston exactly what you would expect her to do and uh they actually uh have a have some property uh that we can see in tax records and cornelia hughes dayton has done some wonderful research on this recently and uh, published an article in the New England Quarterly about it two years ago. But like so many in Boston during the Revolutionary War, uh, they they get into debt. They um, move to an to a rural town where John Peters was from and where he has some prospects of being able to take care of the house and lands he grew up in, in in a kind of uh, trade. I think I'm th- I think of it actually as a kind of reverse mortgage where he's going to take care of the widow and their uh, disabled younger daughter and the farm and uh but he and he's eventually going to inherit it and there may have even been a family connection between that family but it's, it's speculation but i think that's a logical presumption it, in a couple of years though it all falls it all falls apart and they get a, they get kicked out and with not much to show for it they come back to boston uh there's some testimony that phyllis that, that they have children phyllis is working but um john peters ends up in 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 debtor's prison which is actually not that uncommon or that or even that big a deal it just means that they're trying to trying to get somebody to pay his debts and uh, you know it, it was a way to coerce people into getting their friends to pay their debts for them and uh but she's she's sick and she passes away in early 1784 while he's in in debtor's prison so there's very little on their experience that last six years but it's very clear she kept writing. She kept publishing at a time when it was a lot harder to publish her poems in in fewer newspapers uh, um, and magazines. But she's still doing it. She still publishes some broadsides. And uh, it's clear that she has a book manuscript that she's uh, waiting to publish and that people are talking about. So uh, often this has been told as a tragic story of a great talent uh, and the loss of her, which is a tragedy, the loss of a lot of her poems that that uh, that that didn't survive that. Uh, never did get published, but it's also not an uncommon one at a time when there are no careers for poets, really. You know, all the other, the notable poets of Boston were ministers and independently wealthy people, lawyers like James Bowden. They they had other jobs. They didn't make a living on their on their poetry. She's the first, in, in some ways you could say she's the, one of the first people to try to do that, and it's not surprising that that it didn't work out. And so, like many, like I mean, it's almost a stereotype—the the the poet of the Romantic era who dies alone in a garret. It's a it's a common trope in Anglo-American literature in the late 18th and early 19th century, and that was her experience. So we can emphasize the tragedy in it, but we could also—I think it's it's uh, more important to realize just how much she did accomplish in a short time, and how the American Revolution both actually floated her project. But at the uh, but in the end, also 
made it very, very hard to continue. Yeah. Well, there is so much more in the book that people can read. Can you tell people how they can get a copy? Well, uh, hopefully at any bookstore or online uh, in, at all the usual places. It's published by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Been out since March. There are then there are the usual. There's an audiobook. There's a Kindle version, and there'll be a paperback next March. And the audiobook is terrific. I listened to it. I really, really recommend it. It's not me. It's done by a fabulous actress named King Kim Staunton. I haven't met her, but she did a fantastic job. Is there anything else you wanted to make sure we talk about? No. It's been a lot of fun. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, try to get it all into a half hour. <laughs> Thank you. I really appreciate you talking with me, and I, I love the book. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Unsung History. Please subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app. You can find the sources used for this episode in a full episode transcript at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions, corrections, praise, or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and tell everyone you know. Bye! M-S-W.